really what they need to focus on in the first few months is steadying the ship and getting you know the staff on board and and getting the staff confident about who they are Welcome to the Dental Head Start podcast. I'm David Keir, and most of us, we get into dentistry and we think maybe maybe one day we'll own a practice. Not many of us start doing that, but for many, it's on the cards, and a lot of that is an unknown. We don't really know what the fundamentals look like for a practice and the accounting and the P&L and how to find a place and how to make an offer and how to get out there and own your own practice. Someone who does know what they're talking about there is Simon Palmer. Simon Palmer runs Practice Sales Search and Practice Sales Search is the broker, the medium between you as someone looking for a practice and the practice itself. Of course, if you're someone who owns a practice and you're looking to exit, Simon Palmer is the person who can help you sell it. This episode is for those who do want to one day own a practice. It's all those little questions and things that you may not know that you need to know if you're going down that path. One of the key lessons Simon talks about is understanding these things early so you can evaluate the right opportunity at the right time. We talk a little bit about the mistakes some people make early on, some of the concepts about transition um, and the different things that you may not already know. If you want to find out more about Simon and what he does, practicesalesearch.com.au. And if you've been following along with my journey with orthodontics, I finally got my Invisalign in, had that tooth out that I needed out. The OrthoEd segment is at the end of this podcast. You can find it at dentalheadstart.com orthoed. Thank you to the supporters of the podcast, Ripe Global, OrthoEd, and starting this episode, Dental Support Service, a service for dentists. If you need to call someone, if you need some support, if you need to ask questions or even just a debrief brief you'll hear about the support service you'll find it in the show notes something again very important to me mental health support for people who need it i'm really glad to be able to get the word out there for the dental support service i hope you enjoy this interview about practice ownership and purchasing with simon palmer as dentists and dental students we all have difficult days You may experience workplace or training demands that have a direct impact on your physical, emotional and psychological health and well-being. This is exactly what dental practitioner support is for. It's a completely confidential and independently run service that's funded by the Dental Board of Australia in an effort to support practitioners and dental students right across the country. Sometimes people call just at the end of a long day to debrief, but sometimes they call because there's more challenging things going on. Dental practitioner support is there for you in these times to give proactive advice, help you improve your health and well-being before there are major concerns. We all need a helping hand sometimes and it's okay to ask for help. So if you find you need it, call 1-800-377-700 or visit the website dpsupport.org.au. They have loads of great information to get you started. Simon Palmer, welcome to the Dental Head Start podcast. Um, obviously, I've known about you for a long time um, with Practice Sales Search and what you do as a founder and director of that. And I want to say thanks for coming on. Um, how are you tonight? Doing well, doing well. Thanks for having me. It's uh, it's good to be on. I'm a fan of the podcast. Well, thank you very much. And um, you know, I'm I'm a fan of someone like yourself who's built a business and now you're running that and you're working for and helping dentists in the dental industry. I'm obviously that's something that's important to me. And I see that, you know, you're a founder of Practice Sales Search, you're a broker in business and you've also studied in business. What's fascinated you about business? Why have you gone down this path? I finished school with very little direction really in terms of what I wanted to do and uh, studying business sounded like uh, a way of 
pushing that decision off uh, in, <laughs> in terms of choosing a profession. It felt like I was choosing something that uh, would be applicable to anything that I wanted to do. Um, and I was quite fortunate I got offered a scholarship to study uh, business information technology uh, at University of New South Wales, which uh, is famous because the Atlassian boys uh, oh, yeah, yeah. also studied it uh, around the same time as I did. Um, so, that's a high bar there. That's I was a, obviously socializing <laughs> with the wrong kids. <laughs> um, the, so I started studying that. And uh, just as, as really a way of, of postponing, you know, the inevitable direction conversation that I had to have and, and, and uh, found that, uh, you know, I was actually quite interested in the business side of things. It's, um, it's funny how <laughs> people say that because I actually, so I studied engineering as a double degree with commerce as my, like, as I, I started and I got into uni doing that. And there's like 300 people in a room for the commerce lectures and like, no one knows what they want to do. And it's, well, you know, 10% of people know what they want to do. And it's really common. I, I transferred out of that pretty quick, but I've, you know, I've got a little bit of interest and, in, you know, then my heart does sit there a little bit, um, except for I transferred into medical science and that's pretty much useless unless you get into dentistry or medicine. So I was very lucky that I got in. <laughs> So obviously, you know, you studied in the, the commerce field and then and went out. Um, how did you end up getting into practice sales search? So it's a bunch of segues that led to each other, really. Um, I finished university and I uh, got swept up in the uh, millennium bug problems, Um if you know anyone remembers, you know in the, in in the late '90s, you know everyone was worried that all of the computer systems of the world would fail because of uh, the Millennium Bug. And uh, you know, I've happened to finish school, finish university, uh, and had done uh, a work experience in a software development team where I'd done some testing, and people just you know hooked into that and and, and offered me some jobs or some work. Um, and, and I got, you know, I, I was able to travel around the world and work overseas, you know, testing stuff. Um, and then came back from overseas and my father had, uh, my father was a dentist. He uh, had started pra uh, prime practice. Um, prime practice was taking off um, and uh, needed, you know, some, some uh, more people involved. I thought I'd work there for a bit. Um, I took a, a job with with my father, which didn't work all that well at all. Uh, <laughs> I don't know. If, you know, it, it, look, I mean, we'd really get on really well, but we just needed our own sort of, you know, demarcation lines of things that we were doing. Um, and while I was there, um, you know, got into dentist recruitment and practice sales and eventually the recruitment just faded away and I was focusing on practice sales. Yeah, yeah, I can imagine it would have evolved over time. Like you wouldn't have said that's my sites, but then you became that. Um, I'm really interested to ask this and like obviously the people who listen to the podcast, especially if you've been listening a long time, Prime Practice um, actually originally was a sponsor. Um, we've had um, Philip... Dr. Philip Palmer on the podcast, so people can go back and listen if they're interested in his journey. Um, but working with family now, obviously, you're you know you're in practice um, 
brokerage and you'd see a lot of people who are selling practices and buying practices and a lot of people have like their partner or their family member or someone involved. Um, do you have any comments about that? Like uh, obviously, you know, you said it's a bit of a challenge for yourself. Um, yeah, any comments about around that? Look, I mean, I don't think that it's all that different from you know, having other partners. I mean, I think, you know, in, in business, I mean, I think you've got to be pretty careful with who, you, who you're going into business with, right? And and part of that decision is finding people who you're complementary with rather than identical to, you know, and, and there has to be, I think, some kind of allocation or, or division of labour so that, you know, not everyone is wanting to... Uh, deal with the staffing issues. Not everyone's wanting to deal with marketing. And if there is that, you know, delineation of responsibility and different people are taking over, uh, uh, are trusting that their partner is capable of doing this and they don't want to do it themselves, then it works pretty well. Um, When you have, you know, two people who are uh, control freaks or two people who are, you know, both similarly minded and, and, and want to be involved in the same thing, it gets very difficult. It gets very difficult because you find that, you know, you're needing to compromise or you're needing to, you know, argue for the right path on, on, a, on a regular basis. And, and, you know, running a business shouldn't be like that. I can imagine, you know, if you're working with family, then it, it'd be hard not to bring that home. And then, you know, it'd be hard not to bring that into other relationships, I guess. Yeah, look, and it is. And it's, and it's hard for it to for the feedback to be purely professional as well, right? Yeah, yeah. You find That's that you know, yeah. you're bringing a, a lifetime of baggage, you know, to the interactions that you're having with someone um, mm. and, and it's not strictly framed within, uh, you know, the decision that's in, that's in front of you. With, you know, the experience you have with the contact with, you know, many different practice owners both exiting and entering have you seen it to be a successful path for people to take or has it? have you seen more challenges? Look, I mean, I, I would say that, you know, the, the most successful businesses that I have uh, had, had the, been fortunate enough to be involved with selling have been partnerships that have worked well. Hmm. Um, unfortunately, you know, because I'm involved at the selling stage, I'm also, you know, see a lot of, partnerships that don't work very well where they've had to sell because it's not working well um so i mean i, I don't think you can generalize and and or i don't i certainly can't generalize and say that uh you know the majority of partnerships are good and the, or the majority of partnerships are not good um it, it could go either way but it's i think it's something that a lot of people cross that bridge um and you know i've seen it work extremely well and not as well. And I guess in in the end, a big part around that question is, you know, asking all the different people that I have on the podcast, you know, their advice, because often you see those little bits that a lot of us don't. Look, where it works really well is, I mean, obviously, you know, there's a level of trust um, and, and, and between the partners, but where each partner is strong, where the other one is weak and together they are a stronger unit for the inclusion of the both of them and and, and they both recognise that and they appreciate that. I mean, at a base level, you know, with two dentists, if one of them can do implants and the other one does ortho, right, you, you can see how the, the uh, union of that in terms of the clinical range of the practice 
would be fantastic. Um, and there'd be no one stepping on each other's toes, you know, but the same goes with all sorts of other skills. Um, you know, sometimes some people are, you know, as I said, really good with, with, uh, staff and other people are really good with figures and together they seem to make it work that way. Yeah, that's a really good point. And what I heard you say, like at the start of that discussion was also being clear about it, like being, um, you know, having clear boundaries from the start. Do you think that's something that's really key for the successful partnerships? I think communication is really important, you know, in the whole thing. I think communication from from the beginning about, you know, what's expected of each other and and uh, what's going to make this, this partnership a success or not from each person's point of view, yeah, that's a, that's an important conversation. And, you know, having the conversation when things aren't working out um, and, and, and having that conversation before it becomes a catastrophe in the practice is important. Yeah, yeah. Yeah, I think they're good pieces of advice. I'm sure there's a few people out there listening who are either in that situation or perhaps will be in it, and I'm sure that will help. Um, let's get back to – so practice sales search is, you know, the, the, the main or core of your business. You also do vet um, brokerage, is that right? That's right, yeah. Yeah, okay. Um, is, is dentistry the bigger part of that? Yeah, look, uh, vet practice um, we've only been doing for about five years, um, so it's not as mature, and we started that from scratch as well. It's certainly been building year on year, but it's it's not as mature or as as um, and and doesn't make up as much of our business as dental does for sure. I'm just curious. I don't know if anyone out there is listening and curious as well. But what's the vet industry like relative to dentistry? Um, more competitive or more around? Like, what, what's the difference? Look, there's a lot of similarities, um, and and strangely enough, I mean, it, it was one of those things where the industry, uh, like a lot, the, the accountants that deal with dentists are also dealing with vets. The people who are doing fit outs for dental businesses are doing fit outs for for vets. Legal, it's the same people. Uh, finance, it's the same people. You know, so I, I would. You know, I was constantly coming across, I mean, it, it was very similar in terms of um, the, the ancillary people that I was dealing with. Um, they're very different businesses, though. Vets work inc- incredibly hard. Um, you know, it's not uncommon for, for vets to be working, you know, I don't know, six days a week, you know, is, is quite normal for a vet. I don't see many dentists working six days a week. Um, I think vets are paid incredibly poorly for the amount of experience and training that they have. Um, the um, And, and the, the scope of what they're responsible for doing is actually huge. You know, if you think about the equivalent for human terms, right, it'd be the equivalent of, a doctor and dentist office, right? And often they have boarding, so that'd be the equivalent of a hotel, the equivalent of a pharmacy, right? The yes, of course, yeah, yeah. The equivalent of a hairdresser because they've often they, they often do grooming on the side, right? Or often some grooming services, yeah. So it, it's an like there's usually like I don't know five different business units or, or, or verticals in a in a vet practice, whereas in a dental practice. 90-something percent of the money's in the chair when, when the patient's in the chair, 
it, it's it's a very different sort of <laughs> way of it's doing it's business. actually really funny um i think everyone's out there thinking wow we've got it easy that's great <laughs> we're, i'm glad we're I'm a dentist i've got a very good friend who's a vet um runs a practice and um i hear about these challenges exactly as you said it um so it is definitely a different industry and um you know they they've very hardworking people can be a challenge for many different aspects and they've got to know everything about every animal. I don't know how they do it. Uh, look, I mean, the, I don't know, like 90% of what they're doing, or sorry, not 90%, but a large, large amount of what they're doing is dogs and cats. I mean, I, I, I think the other thing that you see is like an incredible amount of, um, I don't know, charitable pro bono work that they're doing as well. You know, people come in uh, not being able to afford, you know, the, the treatment that their animal needs and the vets often pick up the slack. I, it's incredible how much I see that as I'm, as I'm looking at the financials of these practices. I'm not surprised to hear that either. I've definitely heard the same thing. Um, all right, let's let's get back to dentistry. I'm sure a lot of people are thinking, <laughs> what are we talking about? Um, how's um, practice sales search grown over the years? I'm sure you've you've been able to really see dentistry grow as well. Um, can you comment on yeah? How's practice sales search growing? And what about the industry? What are you seeing change over the last two decades? You've been doing this. That's a great question. Um, I think uh, the industry's changed enormously, you know, over, you know, the last, I mean, I've been selling practices now in one form or other for, you know, 15 years. Um, and in that time, I think, you know, uh, what people have been looking for and what's important to dentists, I've seen change enormously. Like initially I'd see people who were embarrassed about being preferred providers you know, they they wouldn't tell me when I was, you know, putting the practice on the market that they were a preferred provider. And now it's a selling point. You know, now people are actually seeking that out. Um, That's and, a function and, and, of the competition, would you say? Um, so people are using that to say, I, I am busy, I'm a preferred provider? Well, it's free advertising. It's, it's also showing, I think, in some respects that uh, the goodwill is stickier uh, you know, the, it, it's less dependent on the principal dentist. I mean, I know there's an argument that you could say the other way around. You're more dependent on these preferred provider things. But I think what these practices are saying often is that, you know, yes, I'm a preferred provider. And that means that really, you know, if I was not here, more, you know, this goodwill is secure. Is that what you see? Like, what have you seen um, in those transitions? Do you think, or is it too case dependent to say that? I don't usually uh, see the success of the practice in any great detail after I've sold it. You know, I sell the practice, I hand it over, I keep in touch with, you know, a lot of people and, you know, they tell me it's doing well or it's not, but I I, I only have anecdotal sort of uh, things, um, chats with people about that. Um, what else has changed? Look, I mean, I, I think I'm definitely seeing a, uh, you know, a, a, a preference away from city practices or, or, or you know, uh, CBD practices. I think when I first started, there was uh, a bit more of an air of, of uh, you know, uh, what's it called? Uh, that, you know, that was something that, that I think dentists aspired to is a CBD practice. Um, I, I think that's kind of lost its shine a little bit over the last 15 years. Yeah, I can't say I'd be buying one in the COVID climate. Look, I, I don't know. I mean, it's horses for courses, really. I mean, I, I certainly see, you know, some advantages of CBD practices. It's just that 
I don't, for some reason, uh, people aren't seeking it out nearly as often as they, as they were. Um, I think it's become a hell of a lot easier to get finance. Um, I think um, it's also at the same time, firstly, there's, there's more people buying more than one practice. Um, and I'm not talking about corporates. I'm talking about uh, owner dentists who will own two or three or four practices, and that's that's their aspiration. They don't want to get bigger than that. They want to own, you know, three or four practices. That I didn't see that much, you know, at all uh, 10, 15 years ago. So 10, 15 years ago, you'd see people who would want to have the one location and build that location, or is it a little, perhaps a little less, um, they were a little less eager to grow into this massive enterprise? Um, I can't even say what the motivation is behind it in, in any sort of general sense. I mean, I, I just think that, uh, you know, the measure of success now is not to have uh, necessarily one practice that's doing you know, have 10 chairs or something like that. Um, it's it's to have, you know, three or four practices, I think, in a cluster, I think, is is what uh, I see a lot of people aspiring to. And when you said partnerships, are you seeing more people, um, say, like an associate buying into the practice or are you seeing more like um, two people who already have one practice are searching for another as a partnership and continuing? Yeah, look, I mean, I, I think what you're raising is is, an, is, is a good point in that uh, the internal sale where an associate uh, buys in, yeah, I, I, I see that still happening quite a bit. Um, I don't think that that is, uh, I don't think that that takes up nearly the same uh, percentage of, of uh, practices bought that it would have 15 years ago. Uh, if that makes sense. I think there's far more practices that are going to the market as a percentage than uh, than used to. Oh, okay. So they used to be more transitioned within the practice and now it's just like I'm going to try and sell to the whole market and see what happens, if that makes Absolutely. sense. Absolutely. Am I look, correct in saying that? Yeah, no, yeah. that's exactly right. Look, when I got into this, you would see a lot of ads for Dentist Wanted with View and you would see these uh dental practices wanting to recruit their successor and set that up. Um, and I don't see that much anymore. I, I, I mean, I don't hear about that recruitment path to sale happening like that, like I used to. Yeah, fair enough. I must admit, actually, when I, uh, 10, I was uh, 15 years ago, first being a dental assistant, and I was, um, you know, talk to the owner and and look at, and I was kind of looking around at all the stuff. I was only in high school when I started, um, but that I, I actually remember that kind of concept. Maybe it was the the owner that I worked with um, talking about it or, or something, but it definitely was something I heard of, and I actually haven't even thought of that. I've never seen an ad that actually, you know, indicates that they want someone um, who may purchase in the future. Um, although I'm sure some people think about it. Um, what about the market at the moment? So let's talk. So that's kind of the past. That's some of the changes. What's the market like now, and what's COVID done to the market? So look, what what the market's like now? I mean, it's 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 hard to answer that without a comparison point. Really, um, COVID's had some interesting um, impacts. On, on, denti on dentistry, on dental practice sales. I, mean, I think, look, straight away uh, when COVID hit, um, 
every deal that we were in the middle of got called off. Uh, Oh, that would have been a nightmare. No one wanted to complete a deal. There was deals that were everything from, you know, I've made an offer and you've accepted all the way through to the legal contracts uh, signed and everyone wanted to pull out. Um, and you can't blame them because we really didn't know what was ahead of us. We didn't know when 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 the world would right itself. We didn't know, you know, when we'd be able to see see patients on on, on a regular basis, you know, under normal circumstances. Um, I even had, you know, one deal I was in the middle of where there was a buyer who was uh, faking COVID in order to try to not settle the sale. Interesting. Um, well, it wasn't so much faking COVID. She said she couldn't get a test and she thought she had COVID. Um, and it was sort of, anyway. Yes. Yeah. <laughs> she didn't in the end. I, yeah, yeah. I can imagine the stress, obviously, for everyone involved. And obviously yourself, you know, having a business that's relying on transactions that are not going through as well. Um, you know, difficult time for everyone. Um, since then, um the world's look. I don't think that uh, practice sales has gone back to exactly the same way that it, it was. Um, you know, I still see um, a bit of hesitancy. I think people out there think that um, dental practice sales or practice business sales should be very similar to the real estate market, and real estate is booming, so surely business sales would be as well. And I. I it's certainly not like that. I think buying real estate is buying bricks and mortar. It's like how people sort of invest in golds and precious metals at, at, at times of uncertainty. And I think there's an element of that when people are buying real estate as well. I think buying businesses uh, involves having a bit more confidence in the economy in, in, in a whole lot of variables, really. And that confidence in the general marketplace hasn't been totally restored. Um, you know, here we are in, in, in July over a year later and, you know, Sydney's in lockdown um, and there's business interruption and it's very hard to know, you know, uh, it, it's it, hard for a, a someone who's about to buy a business in Sydney to know, well, when is that going to happen again? If it's going to happen again, how for how long? Um, I think really if, if we put our sort of, uh, I don't know, reasonable hats on here i think we we can sort of look at this now and say okay we've seen a few of these things it usually writes itself within a, a, a couple of weeks you know we've got uh vaccine rollouts happening you know at, at a very high rate and you know for most people you know they're, they're able to look you know work around covid um, work around, you know, this. But it, it still hasn't gone back to 100%, the, the confidence levels the way it was before. Yeah, it's a good point you raised. You know, from the business purchase point of view compared to real estate or other things, it is different in that you have to then run that business and produce what it produces for it to be worthwhile. Um, it's been interesting that COVID has, for, for many, initially actually increased um business a lot of people were very busy and people weren't traveling overseas so they get the teeth done kind of concept um you know whether that continues or not we'll we'll see i guess but um have you seen the general numbers of practices reflecting positive numbers in the last 12 months or or absolutely absolutely so i mean generally what we're seeing is um 
And I think this is also what makes it difficult for some people, right, is, you know, if three years ago, if you were to look at the last three years of a practice or two years ago, if you were to look at the last three years of the practice, it would generally be tracking usually uh, within 10% of the year before, Uh, 10% up, 10% down, something like that. Uh, what we're seeing at the moment is that, you know, FY20 is usually, uh, you know, a little down because, you know, m- most states in Australia had some some level of lockdown. So you maybe had two months less of production. Um, so, you know, th- there's uh, the, the overall production is a bit down in FY20. And in FY21, um, everywhere but Melbourne, um, you're seeing... FY21 was 20% up. Um, and, it, you know, so uh, and, and it's hard to look at those three years and say, okay, well, you know, uh, where is this, you know? Yeah, how do you value that? <laughs> um, yeah, look, I mean, I think, you know, there, there is, uh, you know, I think it's, it's wrong not to pay attention to the most recent year and the most recent year has, has shown, it, 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 you know, really strong um really strong figures. I mean, some people say that, as you said, it's because, um, I don't know, they ha- they've they got JobKeeper and they haven't been able to go overseas and so they've spent that money here. I-, I think really what it's shown more than that is that the dentists and the hygienists themselves have spent more productive days in the practice and haven't taken holidays as much as they have in previous years, right? And so this is actually more indicative of what the practice could do if it was staffed at, at a higher level um, if, if the clinicians weren't taking off the <laughs> amount of time that they took off. Um, uh, we're not vets though, you know. <laughs> <laughs> I'm not, uh, obviously Sorry. everything needs a balance, right? Yeah, yeah. <laughs> um, but there is, there is an element of truth in, in what I'm saying. I mean, I think if, you, if, if most practices, if you were to look at the number of productive days that the dentists and the hygienists had done in FY21 and compared it to FY19, you'd see that there was more, more days per dentist in there. That's interesting too because if they're then fully booked at that, you know, that, that you can project into the future, um, there's the demand. I guess the one red herring there might be if they're, um, you know, if they're not fully booked and they're only doing four days, then that might not work in the same way. Ripe Global is an incredible resource, especially in these times where travel is a little bit difficult, but we're also realizing it's not always necessary for our education. Especially when we're starting our career, we just want to get as much as we can. And a platform like Ripe Global's membership is perfect for that. But Ripe Global is a lot more than that. They've got the fellowship in restorative dentistry. And while it's already started with the posterior dentistry course, they've just released the anterior dentistry course, one where you're going to learn about composites, aesthetics, isolation, and indirect work as well. One of the hardest things to do in dentistry is the single front tooth. And this course is aimed at helping you improve that skill. Find out more at ripeglobal.com or check out the show notes and you can get 30% off a membership all from the comfort of your own home. In a reflection of that comment, what should we be looking for in a practice? What is the the people listening, the young graduates, they might have some experience now and they're looking, they're thinking about looking. What's a good practice? (laughs) Look, um... I, I think that the easy answer to that is 
one that fulfills your professional and lifestyle goals, right? Um, Very well said. <laughs> you know, um, and so it's not the same answer for everyone is what I'm trying to say. Yeah, for some people it's more important that they work only four days a week and that they get eight weeks holiday a year. And for other people, what's important is that they're able to do dentistry at the high-end level uh, without any quality compromises or, you know, without. So there's different uh, pursuits that different buyers have when they go to buy a practice. Uh, for some people, it's just I want to I buy myself a job close to where my family and, and, and ethnic group are. I want to live in this area and I want to, you know, have a dental practice here. Um, so, I mean, there isn't one answer that, that fits everyone. It's a really good point and that makes a lot of sense. You know, we all have our unique um, bias and interests and, and location bias and all the rest of it. Like, for instance, and I've said this many times on the podcast, I work regionally and I wouldn't have it any other way. Like, you'd be really hard-pressed to get me to move back to Sydney. Um, but at the same time, most of my colleagues from regional want to move back to Sydney. So everyone's different and there's nothing wrong with that. Absolutely. And some people are look chasing preferred providers and other people turn around and they say, look, I would never, you know, do work at those fee levels. And that's fine as, you know, like I said, horses for courses. Exactly. And we can have success at all of those different levels as well. I think that's something that, you know, the people have their bias, but, um, you know, I've seen phenomenally successful people in different um, situations, different types of practices. And that's why I talk to a lot, like a lot of people ask what to look for in a job as they graduate. And uh, it depends on you and what you want to pursue. It's the same kind of answer, right? And, you know, for me, I don't personally work in a preferred provider practice. And to be honest, I wouldn't be as good as most people in that because I'm not as fast, but I don't aim to be. And so it's everyone's different. What about what are the red flags that we just want to watch out for? What are the the, the more common pitfalls that I see buyers fall into? Look, I, I think buyers look at practices through a very narrow lens. Usually, um, I think yeah, you know, I, I don't think they they look at practices as broadly as as they should. Um, and and by that I mean you know I think. They'll often look at a practice purely in terms of its turnover and profit without looking at how easy it would be to fix those things sometimes. Um, and I'm not saying all the time, but regularly uh, there are practices out there where there's some really easy fixes. Where Like, you know, like what? what? What kind of things are you thinking of? I've seen, I've, I've sold practices that are ground floor on, on a busy uh, pedestrian and, and, and uh, you know, car traffic road that has terrible signage, <laughs> right? I've seen <laughs> um, people spending an enormous amount of money on yellow pages still, right? Yes. <laughs> that, that, that's, that's, that's disrupting the profit, right? And they've just always done it, you know, and so it's always continued. Um, you know, I, I see, uh, you know, practices without a website that are doing pretty well already and you kind of think, well, if only this guy, someone came in with some, you know, up-to-date sort of marketing knowledge here, they could really make some big differences. Do you think that's an area that most or many fall down on from the marketing side of things because a lot of those things are those these are business concepts so really they're I not dentist see, concepts well i mean what i see is 
some older dentists, uh, I think, get by on older ways of thinking for a long time because they've got they do decent dentistry, they've got good personalities, the the, the community follows them, right? And so they never really had to try. They never really had to keep up to date with this stuff. And it just rolls over. And they, uh, you know, sometimes are overpaying staff uh, significantly. Um, and, uh, you know, they, they just, they've never reappointed patients. They're still sending out, uh, you know, uh, reappointment postcards, you know, to the, and, and spending, you know, thousands of dollars on these postcards, you know, that I, 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 didn't, I, mean, I, I don't even get mail anymore. Yeah, you know? <laughs> throw it away before I read it. <laughs> um, so, I mean, you could go into a practice like that that ha- that is doing well anyway, in spite of these things, and and put a, a level of of, of uh, new thinking on top of it, which would make it a big success. So, I mean, I think, and and the the real problem that I see for buyers with that is that they don't even look at them. Right, they look at the production yeah, the numbers and, don't the, meet the, the, yeah, the yeah. numbers don't meet. They don't the, the production and profit doesn't work for them so they don't dig any deeper and they don't they they don't want to hear about the rest um another mistake i think that they make is 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 hiring the wrong lawyer oh yeah tell me more <laughs> uh it shouldn't be understated that uh, uh, an inappropriate lawyer can ruin any deal um and lawyers are very much like dentists in, in, in some respects in that I've, I kind of feel like some dentists say that they can do clinical work that they probably should be referring to a specialist, okay? And I see the same flaw with some lawyers who are, uh, I do a bit of everything, and this is a complex sort of transaction with a lot of moving parts, and it really should be a commercial lawyer that's doing it. What, what kind of mistakes um, might someone see? So we're talking to an audience that probably isn't very familiar um, with what you mean by that. Um, what kind of mistakes happen in the deal process from a lawyer's point of view or even from the buyer's point of view that might trip the whole deal up? I think that they can ask for some inappropriate or uncommercial terms um, in terms of the restraint of trade, in terms of post-sale commitment, um, in terms of... Uh, you know, guarantees that should be in place. I think, um, you know, if you get a, I've seen some divorce lawyers be overly aggressive and, uh, you know, almost spoiling for a fight rather rather than trying to get a deal done or, 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 or trying to get this across. Um, and then, you know, there's a lot of people who will just choose, you know, a family friend or, or a cousin uh, who says that they'll do this uh, on the cheap or they'll do this, be, you know, because they're, they're their cousin or their brother-in-law and you find that um, they will under or over service because of that relationship. It's all the biases that come with it. It's um, it's an interesting thing. It's a little bit like a patient who, um, you know, our patients don't really know how good our actual dentistry is. They kind of just know how we communicate with them. And I guess it's the same and difficult concept of having any profession um, profession where a lawyer or an accountant, you don't really know. Um, you just know how they make you feel. <laughs> um, so that's pretty good advice. Make sure they're in the right field. Yeah. Look, I mean, if, if um, 
I, I, I keep using that dentist uh, analogy. And if there was a complex ortho case that walked in your door, you'd want it refer. You'd want to refer it to an orthodontist. Um, you know, if uh, you know there's a complex or, or problematic perio, you, you'd, you'd refer it to a specialist, a, a, a periodontist. Um, you know, and this is a complex transaction. This is something you know with hundreds of thousands, if not millions of dollars, you, you, you want to make sure that it's going to the right person. Um, what factors do you think about when you value practices? So what should people be thinking about is kind of the question. So uh, it's, it's an interesting topic. I've just spent like two days doing valuations. Uh, <laughs> Good, it's and, fresh. And, and appraisals. So um, it, it's something I'm pretty fresh at. Look, paramount is is production and profit or revenue and profit. I think you can't go past that. And I think, you know, when you're talking about valuations, you're really looking at how easy is it going to be for me to repay this loan if I go and buy it, uh, buy this practice? Uh, how many years is it going to take for me to repay this thing? So, you know, revenue and profit is, is, is paramount. Um, but influencing the decision is the risk factors that would inhibit that continuing into the future, right? So if you had a pretty poor lease on the premises, right, well, that would mean a decrease in in, in the appraisal, right? Um, if there was a high key man dependence um, and that clinician was likely to leave post-sale, well, that would decrease the appraisal um there's a whole lot of things that you could look at as as risk factors or or things that would you know give you security um in that regard and and that's really the those are the things that influence evaluation um i should say that on top of that though i mean just like with real estate evaluation isn't the end of the story if you went to your a real estate auction and you pulled out a valuation that you'd had done and said, you know, hang on, you know, this auction's going too high, you know, it, it, it's, you'd be laughed out of the place. And, <laughs> and the same thing happens with business sales though, right, because there are people who are willing to pay a premium above a valuation price and they'd be willing to pay that premium above the valuation price because they can see opportunity there. They'd be willing to pay a premium because because there's an emotional part of the selection criteria, not just uh, a a reflection of of the figures. Um, You know, the fact that it's close to home for them, you know, they may be willing to pay a bit more for that. Right or you know that they grew up in the area and and they've got significant ties to the community that might add something. So you, you end up you have the valuation and then you know there's <laughs> what someone might be able to to pay as a premium on top of that depending on other factors. It's interesting business valuation. It's just like I guess stocks and shares valuation or, or like any of that kind of thing. If you all your parameters, you can change them just a tiny bit and the whole end value is totally different. And like you said, some people have the personal reasons and emotional reasons and you can't really put a number on those as well. Um, so, yeah, that's all really, really fair. Is there anything that you want you would say to the buyers, the next generation of buyers? Look, I think that, 
getting into business ownership is, is a great thing. I don't think that it's, uh, you know, something, I mean, look, don't get me wrong, I, I completely see the value of uh, a couple of years of, of working under someone and, and having a mentor and, and being able to, you know, just focus on clinical skills before you get into business. But I think uh, getting into business for yourself and owning a business gives you, you know, fantastic skill set and uh, on top of the ability of to for wealth creation. I think it's something that, you know, uh, people shouldn't be overly hesitant or, or, or scared of. I think it's actually, um, you know, something that should be seen as as a rite of passage, maybe not owning a massive practice, but, you know, having a look and, and owning a small business at some stage, I think, uh, I think is something that uh, should be aspired to by most dentists. I was going to say, do you think that's changing? Because in the past, I would say that was the most common view. Um, would you say that is less of the view now for, for like the just the average dentist? I think I, I see dentists putting it off more than they used to. You know, I, I, I think, um, you know, I, I don't see it being something that's happening, you know, second or third year out. I, th- I think people are coming at it, you know, six or seven years out, some, you know, a, a lot more than I used to see. Um, I don't know if that rings true with, you know, your friends, um, you know. Um, when, if someone's thinking, oh, they want to get into business at some point or ownership, when should they start looking? And what I mean by that, like say they're thinking of doing it at a certain time, how long do you think or how long does it normally take a buyer to go from interested and in reaching out to you all the way through to um, in their own practice? Um, I, I guess what I'm trying to, what I was trying to say before is I'm, I, I'm I think that the sooner that they start educating themselves about it and, and seeing what the return is on practices, um, you know, the better. So, you know, if you were thinking of doing it in five years, I think you should be looking uh, at practices that come up for sale in, in the areas that you're interested in. I think you should be doing it if it's within two years. Um, I, I think that, you know, that process is, is, is important. Yeah, have a finger on the pulse, whether you're ready now or not. That makes a lot of sense. All right, then. Once you've found a practice and make an offer that is accepted, how long does it take till you actually own the practice? So from the time that you've offered price and terms that a, a vendor or a seller wants to receive or wants to accept for their practice, it usually takes, you know, two, two and a half months before the practice is in your hands as a buyer. Um, People are often astounded at this. They kind of feel like it should be closer to real estate again. They think that, uh, you know, they'll take some off-the-shelf contract and both parties will sign it. Usually the legal process takes a month at least, maybe six weeks. Um, there's There's a lot more variables in a business sale contract than there is an, in a premises sale contract. Um, at the same time, you know, selling a business, there's usually three contracts, uh, not just one. So there is the business sale contract. There's a premises lease or a premises sale contract, which is uh, a necessary, you know, adjunct to or, or addition to the, pra- the business sale contract. And then there's usually a work contract for the vendor post-sale. 
So those three contracts have to be negotiated and, and um, finalized altogether. And that usually takes, you know, five weeks um, for, you know, the lawyers to put together, three lawyers, buyers, seller's lawyer and uh, the landlord's lawyer. Um, and then from when you sign, both parties sign a contract until settlement, there's usually another month. Um, and that's in order to put into effect all of the different transfers that need to happen with a business sale. Um, from a buyer's perspective, they'd like to have the staff contracts in place on settlement. Um, but the vendor doesn't want those staff contracts to be negotiated before there's a contract of sale that's been signed. Um, the buyer would like the high caps to be transferred before settlement. The um, domain name, the phone number, um, the supply contracts, um, all of those things, all of those transfers happen in between exchange and settlement, and that's usually another month. So as I said, it's, it's usually about um, two and a half months from when you've made the offer that is accepted by a seller until settlement, until you own the practice. So if someone, so, you know, there's no perfect book um, that someone can pick up. So what's the first steps? Someone's listening. They're like, oh man, I actually need to start thinking about this stuff. What do you recommend they do? Um, like, makes sense. They probably should reach out to you. What steps should they take next? I, I look, again, I have no problem with them coming and having a look at practices that I'm representing. Um, I uh, fully expect, you know, that uh, some of the people that I'm showing through a practice will not buy it, <laughs> you know, and, and they're just, you know, getting to know the, the market or, or um, trying to educate themselves about, you know, what go, how much uh, different practices go for. I, I'm happy for, to have inquiries like that. Um, I would also recommend that they start talking to the auxiliary people that they're going to need in order to do a transaction. So what do I mean by that? I've already mentioned lawyers. Um, a dental accountant, I think, is, is a good place to go. Um, and dental finance. Um, and start to work out from a dental accountant what sort of buying entity you're going to use. Um, and what you're going to need to have for your accountant in order for them to set that up and how much does it cost and all that, all of that sort of thing. Speak to the bank and find out what they'll need in order to lend you the money uh, and what the process of that is like. Um, you know, find out which lawyer you are going to use when your time comes um, and get a couple of recommendations from friends. I can give you recommendations. Um, but, you know, a buyer that comes uh, to the finish line prepared with these things is usually seen as a lot more serious than someone who isn't. Um, and by going through that process, you'll start to realise, you know, you'll, you'll, you'll start to learn a hell of a lot about the timelines involved in uh, buying a practice um, and, and you'll learn a hell of a lot about... Um, where the banks see value and where the banks see risk, and that'll help inform your decisions as well. That's a good point. Um, I know, you know, obviously you're not in the banking space, but you have a good handle on the pulse. Where do they see value and risk from that? Can you just make a, you know, quick general comments on that? 
People think that the banks just look at uh, a profit and loss, just look at the revenue and profit. Um, and of course, they do look at these things. These things are important, um, of, of paramount importance. Um, what I think a lot of buyers don't understand is that they also look at uh, some qualitative information um, about the opportunity and make sure that there isn't um, unnecessary risks that they're taking with this. Um, a few examples of that is like they'll, they'll look at the lease. Um, if you're borrowing the money with uh, a plan to repay it over 10 years, do you have a lease for, secure for the next 10 years? Um, if you don't have a lease secure for the next 10 years, they look at that as a risk that you might have to move inside that time and that there'll be a risk of patient attrition or business interruption that might inhibit your ability to repay the loan. Um, they look at the compatibility that the buyer has with the practice uh, on a number of levels. They look at uh, the clinical range that the buyer has and whether that's compatible with the uh, practice and the clinician that they're going to be replacing. They look at uh, the buyer's uh, ability to produce, you know, what, what sort of daily rate of production is, uh, is, is he used to? And is, he, uh, is that compatible with the person he's replacing? Are the fee levels that he's used to charging compatible with the practice or is it going to be a huge jump? And if uh, those compatibility questions come up with questions uh, as to the compatibility, well, they see that as risk. Um, they'll also look at whether the vendor is staying on or not, whether the vendor is giving a smooth transition. They um, know and they recognize that when a vendor gives a smooth transition um, and rather than a walk-in, walk-out, it represents a, a greater chance of patient retention post-sale and a greater chance that the practice will go um, smoothly uh in, 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 the in the transition rather than there be abrupt changes and, and the possibility of risk. Yeah, no, that makes that makes a lot of sense. Um, and as you said, you've mentioned a few of the things that we should be looking for, you know, for out there looking for practices. And it sounds like the, you know, the banks, obviously they've done this before and they're, they're going to be looking pretty tightly at all those different things. Let's um let's wrap it up, Simon. I really appreciate your time. Um, you've gone through a lot in this this area that a lot of the listeners wouldn't have a lot of experience with. Um, but I want to ask the final question, which is, if you can imagine all the people who are about to graduate, they're you know going into dentistry, but you want to leave them with one little piece of wisdom. You've given a lot of advice in a broad range of areas, but what's the one thing you would want to leave a new graduate thinking about at the end of this podcast? Geez, it's a good question. Um, look, I'd, I'd tell them to start to start looking. I'd tell them to start uh, getting an education in uh, the the financials of a dental practice. Um, I think uh, they'll find that it'll serve them well in their career to get that education early. Yeah, and I think that makes a lot of sense. You touched on it prior, and I think a lot of people, you know, I think it's a future thing um, without, and then perhaps they start too late. But um, that's fantastic advice, and I really appreciate your time, Simon Palmer. Where can we uh, find you, and where can people find all the, the articles and other things? Uh, PracticeSalesSearch.com.au is our website. Um, all our articles are on there. Um, my contact details uh, you can get through the website as well. Um, that's, that's probably the best way to contact. Fantastic. Well, thank you again. I really appreciate your time on the Dental Head Start podcast. No worries. Thanks for having me.
Welcome to the OrthoEd segment, segment nine, and I'm finally in aligners. You might be able to tell because I've got a bit of a lisp, um, but I am getting used to them pretty quick. I've been in them one week now. I wouldn't have been able to have this conversation when I first got them. Um, the hardest thing for me, to be honest, was finding the time because I needed a tooth removed, um, wanted a bit of healing time and to get used to it. So it's been a few weeks between when we finished our planning, which was uh, the OrthoEd segment eight, and this, which is segment nine. In the meantime, we've been continuing with the OrthoEd Mini Masters. We've been doing some of the content online because of the shutdown. So a very dynamic situation, really challenging for all of those people organizing courses and running these events out there around Australia and the world. Um, So I want to say big thanks to, of course, Robin, who is a a coordinator for OrthoEd and she runs the show in the background and of course Dr. Jeff Hall who runs the courses. Um, they've been doing Q&As online, getting the content to us um, and there will be in the future a hands-on session um, to, to catch us up for that. So they're definitely making it worth our while. All right, so why am I even doing this OrthoEd segment? Well, the key thing for me getting aligners was to experience it myself and to be able to then explain it to my patients. I I have a thing really wanting to understand that and um, it's already opened my eyes to so many different parts of this process. So hopefully the OrthoEd segment um, shows you my journey in getting the aligners, learning orthodontics, um, but also maybe a few little tips that you might be able to pass on to your patient to help them with their comfort or things you can warn them about or or different bits and pieces. So um, today I just wanted to talk about like getting the aligners and having the um, the tooth removed as well. So it's fairly simple things. Um, Obviously, a bit of an interesting uh, situation when you have a tooth removed and then a line is straight in. Um, A lot of this is going to be pretty obvious too throughout the next number of segments is stuff that, you know, a lot of you might already know. So I hope this is useful, but at the same time, um, I want to relay it for those who don't have any aligner experience, never had them themselves or never provided them as well. Um, First thing I noticed uh, getting the attachments on is the etch tastes terrible. (laughs) And it's it's funny because it's been a while since I had a filling or, you know, something without rubber dam, I guess. And etch is really sour, obviously. Taste it, you know, be safe, but taste it to know. Um, But that means when you're washing things off, you know, being really careful to get, make sure that doesn't go onto the patient's tongue. It's just actually um, made me more acutely aware of that and that's something that I hope to be able to keep patients a bit more comfortable. Um, When you have the attachments on, I've noticed, you know, they are a bit rough and the little bits of excess on, um, particularly if it was on the edge of the tooth, you notice that at the start, but that obviously wears off or chips off. it's always going to be a bit rough and you can't really smooth them perfectly because you could then damage the attachment and limit its effect. So it's something to warn your patient of. But of course, once your aligners are in, it's perfectly comfortable. So that's the other side of the coin. Make sure they know that they're not going to have rough bits on the edge of their teeth. It's smooth and comfortable with the aligner in or at least the attachment's comfortable. The extraction was totally fine. I like didn't feel any pain or anything, you know, Articane works really, really well. But having an extraction and then putting big four millimeter rectangle attachments on the teeth next door and then putting a tray in that's moving those teeth 
definitely meant that the next couple of days were pretty uncomfortable and I did find myself on um, Panadol for at least two or three days, something like at least three or four days and I generally try to avoid that kind of stuff. Obviously, Nurofen or ibuprofen is not ideal when you're having orthodontic movement because it's anti-inflammatory and that inhibits the actual process of bone um, apposition and resorption and the whole process. So you don't want your patients on ibuprofen a lot through their orthodontic treatment. And so I tried to avoid that, but there were times where I wish I was on it as well. The biggest thing I noticed actually, and it's pretty obvious, but if you put big fat attachments on the teeth next door to an extraction site, it's really uncomfortable to remove and place your aligner because it's pushing the teeth right next to an extraction site. Um, so obviously it's like it's obvious it's something to be aware of um, and to you know really warn the patient if they're ever having extraction and then align us straight away um, so if you're watching the video on YouTube um, you'll find it at dentalheadstart.com slash orthoed um, you can see I've now got a space and <laughs> that's one of the strangest things um, about all of this but of course I'm in a time now where masks are mandatory all the time in New South Wales so no one knows because they've been covered up the whole time. So maybe that's um, maybe that's a positive of the masks. Um, I realise I'm going to have this space for about 16 uh, weeks, I believe, and a crossbite through that period um, that's resolving. So it's going to be quite a challenge um, for my mouth and chewing and the comfort. But of course, something I'll get used to and I'll explain as I experience it. The last thing I'll mention about the first, you know, impressions of having the aligners is it does impact on your speech a little bit, particularly S's and like the word speech, it's kind of harder to say. It's your tongue getting caught on the inside part of the aligner. And for me, having a lower tooth extracted, I did tick the pontic space for that tooth and it was only there for the first aligner um, but it got in the way and I actually didn't use it I didn't fill it up with anything um, or you know color it in so it looked like a tooth so it was actually kind of useless and just made speech a bit harder um, so it's something certainly to consider in the speech thing I got used to fairly quick but I I've got them in now for this segment but I definitely took them out for an interview I did just yesterday because um, it definitely still has an impact. So, so far, so good. I've got through one week of aligners. I'll keep uh, you guys updated on what I'm experiencing. And next episode, I want to talk to you a bit about some of the things I've noticed in the first week um, and some of the little tips and things that you may or may not have heard that I'll, I've been told and that I've experienced and that I'm going to then pass on to my patients as well. So... If you want to learn orthodontics, orthoed.com.au. If you go to our show notes, you'll find some links and you'll find some discount codes if you are interested because they are offering our listeners 10% off. Um, I'm doing the mini masters and so far I'm really enjoying it. I'm learning a comprehensive orthodontics um, and then obviously learning it and having it. It's been a really good experience so far. So um, reach out if you have any questions. Otherwise, we'll see you with the next orthoed segment. Welcome back to Erica's Corner. To wrap up our June Giving Project, thanks to all your support with over 6,000 listens and 63 shares, we'll be donating $123 towards filling the gap. We've been getting so many more shares in recent months, so thank you all for helping us spread the word. 
If you want to contribute towards filling the gap in any other way, you can volunteer in the dental aid clinics at St. Leonard's HQ, adopt a patient into your own clinic, or donate any consumables you may have. And of course, you can check out fillingthegap.org.au or any of our previous posts for more information. This month, we're heading back to partner again with another B1G1 project. And this time, it's about providing a regular dental checkup for someone in India, which costs 5 USD. I'm sure you can all agree it's much less than what we or any of our patients would be paying for a dental checkup. It's a fantastic initiative, so let's see how many people we can help out this month. Just the other day, I was listening to Dr. Catherine Yang's podcast, number 55, Step on Fear, where she talks about her journey towards conquering fear, writing her book, Step on Fear, and then her personal discovery of B1G1 and its philosophy. She shared some really insightful thoughts, which I thought was a great reminder of why we have our giving project. We can start as small as one cent and help somebody out there in need. We don't have to do anything huge, but we can still give no matter what. And 1% can go a long way. So thank you all for being part of the journey and helping us marry together, both running the podcast and giving back to the community as well. We hope it inspires you to do the same. And that's it from me today. So as always, thank you so much for listening. Until next time. Thank you so much for listening to the Dental Head Start podcast. I genuinely hope this is helping you become a better dentist. So if you like what you're hearing, make sure you subscribe on your podcast player and I want you to do me a favor. I want you to go to social media and share something that you've appreciated from us with one of your friends. That's how the word gets out. That's how more people gain and benefit from what we're doing. And if you're a dental student or a graduate and you want to get a head start, go to dentalheadstart.com start to find everything we're doing to help dental students become great dentists.